Mission field. Working with kids that live near the dump, right? In Costa Rica? That's right. For how long how long have you been down there now? Six months? Six months. That's awesome right there. That's really cool. Um, you know, I don't know if you know, Corey, but we've been going through this radical, this study radical. Um, have you read the book? Okay, so we need to get Corey a copy of the book. But, uh, you know, talking about leaving your father and your mother or whatever, not that Corey left his, I mean, yeah, he physically left his father and mother. But Corey had a tough, tough choice to make, and I'll let him share more in depth with that. But um, Corey had some conflict there with his, particularly his dad, in, in whether to go on the mission field or not. And his dad had a course for Corey's life, and God had a different course for Corey's life. And there was a real uh, juxtaposition there. And uh, so we'll, I won't steal the thunder of that story. I'll let Corey tell you that. But, but for all those people that are listening to this later in the week online uh, in the church who've really struggled with those verses, like Kiva said this morning, not that God is calling us all to hate our mother or father, uh, but God, we, we need to be a place where we are willing to listen to the Lord's calling, whatever the cost. And, uh, and yes, for some of us in the room, it costs us um, division there. And, and I'm not saying that Corey and his dad are like in a horrible relationship because they're not. Uh, I'll, isn't that cool? That's really cool because Corey was obedient to the Lord. They're actually closer now. Um, man, God's good. I can't wait to hear the story. So, yeah, awesome to have Corey back. All right, what else? Not only that, Corey had to leave a hot babe that he was dating. And, uh, and they were pretty, I mean, they were, they were, yeah, they were pretty serious or whatever. And they had to come to a place where they could. So, yeah, we'll let you, now you'll all be t- waiting to hear his story, yeah? So we'll have Corey back and share his story sometime because Corey gave up a lot, a whole lot to be obedient to the Lord, and I can't wait to hear what all God's done in his life in Costa Rica and whatnot. What about the rest of you? How are, how are the rest of you doing with this whole Radical series? Tired of hearing about it? That'd be okay if you were. I think you're right. Kim and I were talking the other night, and, um, and just talking about the comments that the staff has gotten talking about it with the staff and Kim and I were talking and I actually think it's harder for the older we are uh, as Americans and the older we are as as Christians as well the harder it is to hear right especially not so much as teenage but but I mean the younger you are you have that authority in your life right I mean you might not like it but your parents kind of tell you when and where and what uh, and even when they don't, they kind of could, you know. Um, but the older you get, and you, some of you guys think, man, when I get an adult, you know, it's going to be really easy to follow Christ. But the older you get, when you start, when you have a job, you're getting a paycheck, you get to decide where all that money goes. Um, it, you have to be responsible and giving that back to the Lord, and it's easier to get a little more obstinate in your ways. You know, I work for this paycheck, I'll decide how we spend it, that kind of thing. And so... Yeah, I think you're right. I think it, it can get get uh, harder for us um, the older we get listening to David. Not only that, but it's a generational thing too. The reality of it is is that the younger you are, the more globally minded you are. 
uh, with the internet, with YouTube, um, Facebook, things of the sort, relationships and understanding and hearing and seeing what's going on in other nations is just very common. Even even when I was your age, you know, the internet really didn't exist. Uh, DVDs didn't exist. Computers, when I was younger, when I was, before I was a teenager, computers, most people didn't have computers in their homes, you know. And, and in my lifetime, Russia was, we were still in the Cold War, you know, and nobody really knew what was going on in Russia other than the spies and the government, you know. And so there was this real just, and that's hard for you guys to fathom. But the reality of it is, is that's, that's the case. You know, Kim was talking with Lori Adair uh, through Facebook this week and just talking about England and a team going over there and hearing about her world over there. So there's, there, for the younger you are, the more globally connected you are in a random sort of way. So, yeah. What else? What else about Radical? You haven't read the book. Yeah, that that'd be a good place to start. Uh, so you could you really see what's going on and um now Okay. Yeah. One of the reasons it's harder the older we get is because many of us are realizing that wow, a lot of what I thought my life was and my faith included is really an Americanized version of it, an American dream. That's hard, hard pill to swallow, isn't it? And once again, maybe not so much for y'all, but, but then again, I hear this from you guys all the time. When you get in youth, most of you, junior high, come into summer camp or something, your first summer camp, you're like, oh, I'm receiving this new revelation that God has, has given me for the first time and it's changing my life. And why didn't they teach us this when we were younger? And and then when you go off to college, you guys will come back and be like, man, God is revealing this awesome stuff through my college pastor. And, and man, just listen to this stuff, you know. And it would be the equivalent of you come back going, hey, there's this verse I found, Philippians 2.13, for it's God who works in you to will and act according to his purpose. It's just awesome. You need to teach this stuff to the youth, you know. Um, in a lot of ways, yeah, you know, you guys realize, wow, um, maybe you were being taught all the right stuff, but because it didn't go from here to here and make application in your life, you you don't remember hearing it. And it's kind of that way. The older we are as Christians, the easier it is to become more complacent. Uh, the more older we are as American Christians, the easier it is to make to to change and allow our Christianity to become an Americanized version of it. And then to be faced with comments and passages in the Scripture we don't preach a lot. Um, and to be faced with comments like the ones David Platt makes in his book, it really challenges us to the core. And many of us have to look back at things we've been doing for years as Christians and realize that those things are not exactly the biblical gospel. They're an Americanized version of it that don't really bring all that much honor and glory to the Lord. Even though our intent was genuine and sincere, we've missed the boat in some places. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, anybody else? This is your chance to ask questions. We're getting all these comments from people in the church, and uh, I wish we could give all of them opportunity to ask questions. So if you've, if you've got comments, thoughts, perceptions, now is the time to do it. Yes. Angela, sorry.
Right. The American, the American dream is based on the foundations that you have rights as an individual, that you have certain liberties as an individual, that uh, if you work hard in the, the capitalist society we live in, in, in a in an entrepreneurial type society that we live in, that if you work hard, you should succeed in life. And then that, yes, you even deserve what you get because you worked hard, you deserve those things, right? Uh, well, that is the American dream, essentially, in many ways, which in many ways is contradictory to what the Word says. Because while Kiva said, uh, said it well this morning, while God hasn't called all of us to go sell our possessions and become poor or move to a foreign nation and become missionaries, the Bible has called all of us to be willing to do whatever God calls us to. And truth be told, as she pointed out in a couple of cases, actually there were three cases this morning, God has called three different people in the room to do just that. Um, one of them was a couple that God has called for them to give their possessions back to their people group in India that that God would move, that God would raise up pastors. So they're reaching the pastors and they're reaching the orphan. That in a class society, and by a class society I mean, or sorry, caste society in India, uh, you are born into a certain caste and you will never leave that caste. So the orphan are the lowest of the low and they will always be an orphan. They can never be an executives of building and that kind of thing because of the caste society over there. So him going back and pouring his personal resources into an orphanage in India, God has asked him to give up much. He worked hard to get to the States to, to come and live in this country. Now God is calling him to take the money he finally raised by getting here and go back to India and pour it back into his people. Uh, Kiva told the story of our Pakistani family who lost, Samuel lost his father-in-law. She, her, his wife lost her father, uh, martyred, eventually would die from his wounds, right? Uh, God asked them for much. And then, of course, you have Kiva. Most people don't realize this, but Kiva was a top executive. Kiva was making bukus of money in the corporate world, and she was about as high as you get in the corporate world, and she gave it all up. And her husband even left her. Um, and she gave all that up to go move over to England with two or three suitcases. She sold all her belongings and took two or three suitcases over to England and served the Lord over there for several years. Right? So while God doesn't ask all, us to do, all of us to give up that American dream, he asks us all to be willing to do so. And as we've talked in the past, we're blessed so that we can bless others, right? It's, it's not blessings that God is giving to us. It's blessings that God is giving us stewardship over. They're not ours. They're ours. They're his, and we get to be a part of st- spreading that blessing out to others. Does that make sense? KJ? Answered it. Anybody else? All right, then turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to read a passage that we talk about. You might have heard it once or twice in your life. Um, but in lieu of what David Plott is suggesting and in lieu of what we've been seeing for the past few weeks, it might take on new meaning for you. So Galatians chapter 6. Starting in verse 11. See what large writ 
large letters I use is I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted. For the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no, cause, no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit, brothers. Amen. So what is Paul talking about here? Right. He's, he's hitting to the core of, of the Jewish faith. He's talking to the church in, 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 over with the Galatians. And he's talking to the church and he's say, because evidently what's happened is some of the church are saying you have to do things this way. God ordained it back in the days of Moses that every male should be circumcised at birth. And so there's, they're now telling all the people in the Galatians and Galatia that are joining the church, they're telling them you need to be circumcised. And what Paul is getting at here is he's saying, listen, some of you are carrying over the traditions from your Jewish faith into your Christian faith. And you're, you're imposing what was Jewish law, you're imposing it on Gentiles that are coming into the church, asking them to get circumcised. And for the Jew, circumcision was a symbol of them being given over to God. It was a symbol that they belonged to God. It was a physical recognition. It was a mark. And so Paul says, listen, some of you are asking these Gentiles that are joining the church to get circumcised. And basically he's going to say, listen, that's not where it's at anymore. We're not under the law anymore. Christ fulfilled the law. So he goes into that. And let's break it down. He says, those who, who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being what? Does that make any sense at all? This is the first century church. Christians are being persecuted. Paul himself was one who persecuted churches, who was going around trying to find Christians and killing them. And now he's, he's telling the, the church in Galatia, he's saying, listen, some of you are wanting people to get circumcised for the outward appearance of it, for, because you think that outwardly it makes them look more holy. And some of you are doing it because you don't want to be persecuted. That makes no sense whatsoever. Who are the Romans persecuting at this time? The Christians, the Jews who have converted to follow Christ, the disciples, the ones who, who bear circumcision, who believe that the law was fulfilled, and not even just them, but the Jews themselves. The Jews are still living under the oppression of the Roman rule here. And Paul's saying, listen, some of you are asking these guys to be persecuted because because you're, you're afraid of being persecuted. What in the world does that mean? Right. It could mean, could mean a few things. 
One, it could mean that he's talking to the church and he's saying, listen, you don't want to be persecuted by the Jews. You don't want the Jews coming and saying you have to do this, have to do this, and you don't want to be persecuted by both the Romans and the Jews, so you are being circumcised. In order to kind of appease the Jews, there's no way you're going to get out from under the Roman rule. Let's at least kind of appease the Jewish people. Probably more likely the case here. What else could it mean? Right. One of the things that is attractive about religions whose salvation is dependent on works is that who does that who does salvation depend on if it's a salvation based on works? Depends on me. As long as I follow the law, as long as I follow the ritual, I can earn my own salvation. It's all on me. And Paul, one of the things Paul could be alluding to is he's saying, listen, some of you, even though you've been say, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you're still trying to gain your salvation by works. And you're trying to avoid persecution, meaning you're trying to uh, avoid the, the, the oppression or the persecution, or essentially you're trying to avoid the work of the Spirit, the disciplining, the pruning process that can go on in you by trying to live still under the law. You're trying to avoid persecution of yourself. You're trying, you're trying to maintain control. And you're doing it by fulfilling the outward things and you're not focusing inwardly. It could be both. For the, uh, you're, the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. What does that mean? There it is. Already in the first century church, people have traded in the true glory of God being brought, bringing freedom to someone's life, being manifest within them. They're, they're turning from the biblical gospel to a man-centered, man-based, not the American dream in this situation, it's the Jewish dream gospel, and they are already putting notches on their belt. We had 300 people join the church and get circumcised last Sunday. Woo! Isn't God good? The thing I love about this passage and that we need to recognize about David Plott's book is that David Plott is writing to Americans, so he's talking about the American dream. But in reality, his principles are the same for all humanity. We as humans struggle and always will struggle with this dichotomy. The gospel, the biblical gospel demands everything from us. It can only be possible through Jesus Christ, his son. And it demands that we die to ourselves, that Christ be the one who's doing the work inwardly in us via his Holy Spirit that's sanctifying us, that is causing us to walk in his ways. And yet we struggle, humanity struggles. 
already in the first century church, people that might have, have witnessed. These are people that, that have talked to the original 12 that have walked with Jesus. These are people who have seen and met with Paul who saw Jesus and was blind and was killing Christians and now is totally converted. And yet even then they're already struggling with taking the gospel and molding it and shaping it to fit their cultural desires and already deciding to, like Kiva said this morning, begin to pad the cross. You know, let's put some bubble wrap around the cross so it doesn't hurt so much so that we can... Do what? We can boast in the amount of people that are getting circumcised. They're already counting numbers. God must be with us because we are growing by this many circumcisions. If anything, this passage tells us and gives us a glimpse that already in the first century, Paul is telling the Galatians the same thing that David Plott is suggesting to us today. Hey, let's get back to the biblical gospel. Because we as humans tend to take God's plan and try to shape it and make it better on our own, and we just end up getting in the way. David Plott isn't picking on the American church. It's God who's giving instruction and rebuke to the human church, saying, listen, this is my way or no way at all. And we see that already here. Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Remember what we learned Wednesday night, youth. Uh, adults, you might not have been there, but, but this, this for us is an eloquent saying as Christians. Remember, I am crucified, the world is crucified to me, and I'm crucified to the world. And that's, that's something that we Christians, we say so often. We have so many nice crosses in our church, and we wear them around our necks, and, and it's become a symbol for us. But, but for the original audience where Paul's saying, listen, the world is crucified to me, and I'm crucified to the world. I no longer live, right? This, this, this picture for the original audience was gruesome. This is not some pretty little symbol that they carried around on their necks because the early Christian, they were identifying themselves with the ichthus. Why not the cross at that time? Because the cross was an instrument of cruelty and death. The Romans still employed it as, as a death penalty, a death sentence. And so when Paul says, listen, I am still crucified to the world, and the world is still cruci- is, is crucified to me now, Paul is saying, listen, this isn't a pretty picture like it is for us Christians today. It's not just a, a Christian symbolism that we just adopt and go, wow, isn't that nice? You know, we don't just put our cross in the truth, whatever. Paul here is saying, listen, this is an ugly picture. This is a picture of suffering. This is a picture of pain. This is a picture of, in the, in the situation of Christ, a man that was completely innocent, dying for the sins of the world, and not just dying, but going through a gruesome, grueling death. When the original audience reads this, they're remembering three weeks ago that guy that was walking down the streets with the beam across his back, blood, sweat, and tears, odors, cursing at the people, going down, being laid down, nailed onto that beam, and being hoisted up for all to see in his nakedness with nothing left to offer the world. No dreams, no ambitions, no hope for a future. He is dead. He has nothing left to give the world. All of his dignity has been stripped away and there he stands naked in front of people or hangs naked in front of people on a cross this isn't a pretty picture 
This is a picture that is up in your face. And in the same way that we hear things like Jesus' words where he says, if you do not hate your mother or father for my sake, you know, if you don't, if you, if, if you're, love for me is not one that makes your love for them look like hate, then you can't be my disciple, and it makes us uncomfortable. This is the same thing that Paul would be saying to the original church today. They are talking about circumcision and being prim and proper, and Paul is basically coming back in their face and saying, listen, don't go back to that Jewish way of thinking because remember, you guys are the ones that crucified the Messiah. And now it's your turn and my turn. This Messiah came and we rejected him. He became the sins of mankind on our behalf. And we were the ones, us Jews, we were the ones that did this to him. Don't go back to that. And don't make little. Don't, don't try to puff yourself up with circumcision again. Don't, don't try to soften the fact that the Messiah came and died for our sins. Don't go back to just circumcision and saying, we've got this many circumcisions. No, he's saying, remember, we owe it to this Messiah to do the same thing he did for us, to take up our cross, his ugly, gruesome, painful, whatever it costs. We owe it to him to take up our dreams, our desires, our passions, our aspirations, and give them all to him. And losing all amount of any human dignity we have left, we are giving it to this Messiah. Everything the world has to offer is now crucified to me. It has become disgusting, gruesome. It has received a death sentence. It has lost all of its dreams, all of its aspirations, all of its dignity. It means nothing to me. I turn and look the other way from that. And I am crucified with Christ. Everything, all my dreams, my aspirations, they are gone. Don't revert back to simple little rules and regulations that if you follow and fulfill, you can be added to the church. No. Don't you dare. Because the Son of God came and suffered for our sake. And he was risen from the grave. And we now, we will take what is due us and we will give our lives to Christ. He bought us with a price. That's what Paul is saying. Don't you forget and don't you belittle. Take that bubble wrap off the cross because it's not just a little symbol. It, it, is, it is pain, suffering. It is death. So Paul's saying, listen, don't go back to, to boasting about people's circumcision. That's not the gospel. In the words of Paul here, we see like David Plot talking to us about the American dream, Paul's saying, no, 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 don't go back to that Jewish dream. Christ didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. Don't go back to living under the law. It was fulfilled in this man that was crucified for us. We must take up our cross in the same way for him. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything What counts is a new creation. And we say that all the time too. Ask Jesus in your heart and he'll make you a new creation. But until you look at the wrath of God, until you look at the depravity of man, that big word that means, until you look at how sinful we are and the fact that we do not deserve Christ's death on the cross for us, 
our sin makes us guilty before God. And what we deserve, according to Romans 3.23, what we deserve is death and eternal separation from Christ. That's what we deserve. And Paul says, listen, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. The law before, the law after mean nothing. What counts is a new creation. Paul's saying, listen, we deserved nothing. We are rich, wretched men and women. We deserve death and eternal separation from God. But he, he came through his loving grace and mercy, and he endured the cross, and he suffered for our transgressions. And the man who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And when we do the same, take up our cross and give all of who we are, our life, our dreams, our aspirations, our dignity, our reputation, all of it, we give that to Christ. The Bible says that he comes and makes us what? A new creation. That's what is necessary. It's not the law that saves. It's the fact that God comes and makes us a new creation. Why is that important we're a new creation? Because God, according to Isaiah and Psalms, God hates sinners. Strong verbiage, not David Plotz, not mine. It's in the Bible. So God must take a sinner through his son, Jesus Christ. And when that sinner fully surrenders to God, the blood of Jesus Christ covers that sinner, and God does something mysterious. Paul calls it a mystery in Ephesians and in Romans. He says, he calls the gospel a mystery. And the mystery is this, that God takes a sinner, somebody that he hates, that he loathes, that he cannot stand because of his holiness. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, God takes that sinner and that sinner comes to the end of himself and dies to himself and gives himself to Christ. And the blood of Christ makes that individual a new creation. And that individual is no longer a sinner. That individual is a child of the king who sometimes sins, but he's not a sinner in God's eyes anymore. He's a new creation. That's the mystery of the gospel. Circumcision, whatever, your laws, your practices, they cannot convert a sinner into a new creation. It's only the blood of Christ and his grace, and his forgiveness, and his mercy, when we submit and surrender to him, turns us into a new creation, and that's what matters. And the life we now live, we live in Christ Jesus. So now, once we're a new creation, we no longer live under the law, but we live in the law. The law does not determine whether we are holy or unholy. The law becomes our desires. Because Christ is in us. Does it make sense? And by the law, I mean his commands. Now, because I'm a new creation, I don't read the word to learn more about God. Now, because I'm a new creation, I read the word to hear from God. God speaks to me. And his word becomes living and active in my life. Able to transform, to change, to direct, to reproach. That's where the secret is. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen.
What an awesome passage. Here it is, the gospel. Here it is, Paul rebuking and instructing the church, saying, hey, you've got to take the gospel as God mandates the gospel, not as you want to change it to fit your, your, your culture, to fit your desires. And here Paul defines the mystery for us. We must become a new creation in order to live this life as a Christian. There's nothing we can do to obtain that. We must die to ourselves. And when we do, God makes us into a new creation. How many of us get saved and then, just like the people in Galatia, turn back to the old way of living, whether that be sinful things, or we turn back to an old legalistic, works-based salvation? And we try to obtain our sanctification by our works. Meaning, how many of us try to bring pleasure to God by our works? Well, Paul is saying you can't do it. It means nothing. What means everything is that Christ make us a new creation. That I'm crucified to the world, the world is crucified to me, I no longer live, yet it is Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live, I live doing what? Anybody know it? Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Right? Oh, I live in Christ, and he lives in me. And so now I don't do these things to obtain favor with God. I do these things because God begins to transform my mind, my desires. He begins to remove my desires because I laid them down at the cross. And he begins to put his desires within me. So you have a successful blonde college student who's dating a hot girl who has everything going for him, who has a dad that's like raised him and paid for him to go to this school so he could get a successful degree and become a successful businessman. And, and he, he, in the midst of that, God comes in and says, no, 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 not your desires, Corey, but mine. And so God takes Corey's desires and he begins to remove them. Not all at once. But over the course of years, God begins to take Corey's desires and he begins to say, those, those are your desires. Let me strip those away. And in its place, God begins to put his desires. And so you have a good-looking, blonde, successful man that graduates from TCU and misses the chance to see them, to go to a game and see them play, you know, when they should be playing for a national championship. He misses out on that because Why? Because he is in Costa Rica working with kids that live next to a dump. And that helped his business career how? That remains to be determined. But you know what? It helped God's plan. Because God took Corey's desires and Corey said, hey, they're not mine to have anymore, to keep or to hold. And God began to put his desires in Corey's life said, man, I want you to go to Costa Rica. I want you to do the unfathomable. Now you have a four-year degree. I want you to go make zero money. 
And I want you to ask people to help support you so that you can go live for six months in a third world country working with kids that live in a dump. Because God's ways are higher than our ways. So instead of getting a good $100,000 a year job in business that could help him become successful and rich and have the American dream, God says, that's not, that's American dream, but that's not my dream. Go work with the homeless. Depend on others while you work with the street kids that live next to the dump and show them the love of Christ. And what happens remains to be seen. Who knows, the next Billy Graham of Costa Rica could have been one of those kids living next to the dump. Why not? God had a plan and a purpose. A plan to prosper them, not to harm them. Part of the plan for their life was to bring Corey into their presence. And like Corey said, because Corey was obedient, now his relationship with his father is actually probably better, even though his dad didn't want him to go in the first place. Because God is a mystery. His ways are higher than our ways. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us. I pray that you would be the one that dictates our life, that sets, us, sets out the plans that you have for us, that you would strip us of our desires and in their place that you would instill us with your desires, that we would be radical followers of Jesus Christ, that we would truly consider the cost, that we would take up our cross daily, no matter what that brings, and follow you so that your glory may be made known in our life and may be made known through our lives into the lives of others. Lord, we thank you for the cost that you paid that we might not be considered as sinners anymore, but that we might be considered as adopted sons and daughters of you, God. New creations. So we pray that you'd work that out in us. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming. And we'll let you know when Corey's going to give his testimony.